We are now continuing this teaching, this through this uh, teaching of Jesus in the upper room, also known as the farewell discourse. Jesus had kind of setting ourselves, reminding us of what's happening here. Jesus had just brought his disciples up to this upper room. Uh, he had washed his feet. He had expelled Judas, the betrayer, out from them. And then he had given them the new commandment. All of this happened in chapter 13. And then yet last week, we looked at how Jesus had promised that in the midst of what was about to happen to him, that he was going to be taken away and crucified, that Jesus had loving his disciples and wanting to prepare them. He doesn't give them everything they need to know, but he wanted to give them some very important things that they need to know. And he taught them about the, the paraclete, the parakletos, or the advocate last week, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Today, Jesus now moves on to give a parable of sorts. He says that he is the true vine. Now, this is, notice what it said there in verse 1, I am the true vine. We have seen this throughout John's gospel. Several times Jesus makes these I am statements. Remember this? Several I am statements. And you could kind of group them up into to two categories. There are a couple of absolute I am statements where he just says I am. You might remember um, this in John chapter 6 verse 20. It, he, when he says it is I do not be afraid to his disciples. That was the first occurrence of the I am. Or in John chapter 8, in his debate with the religious leaders, when he said to them that I told you that you would die for your sins, die in your sins, for unless you believe that, and the ESV has I am he, to kind of help make it make sense here. All he says, though, is that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. A few verses later, it says, when you, and he's telling them about his crucifixion, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, the ESV adds the he there, but he's saying I am. And all of these times, remember, there's kind of an echo here of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses uh, comes to the burning bush and he hears the voice from the burning bush and it's the Lord, says, take off your... Your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. And he commissions Moses to go and bring the people of Israel out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And remember, at the end of this, Moses kind of says, okay, who shall I say is sending me? And he says, I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. Or we would sometimes pronounce this as Yahweh. Or whenever you see in the ESV, in the Old Testament, all the... the uh, L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the covenant name of God. When Moses asks, who shall I say, send me? Say, I am. Here, Jesus, in all of these instances, is connecting himself to the great I am. And it becomes even more apparent in John chapter 8, verse 58, when in continuing his debate with the religious leaders, there, when he had said something about Abraham and saw my day and was very glad. And they're like, you're, well, you're not even 40 years old. What do you mean you, you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now this time, 
they did catch what he was saying. This time, they attempted to grab stones to stone him, to kill him. And we learn a couple of chapters later, they give the reason why. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So those are the absolute statements where Jesus says, I am, and then it's not really followed by something. But there's several times when there's metaphorical statements of I am. And you might remember these in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Or the bread that comes down from heaven. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8. I am the door for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10. In John chapter 11, in the raising of Lazarus, before so, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the seventh of these metaphorical statements where Jesus says, I am the true vine. So a couple of things to notice about this passage. And, and in some ways, this passage is, these words of Jesus are so beautiful, it almost is ruined by comment. And it's ruined by exposition. So I'll try not to ruin it much. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus is Israel. Jesus is Israel. Now, you might scratch your head and go, wait, what do, you, what do you mean here? Jesus is Israel. Well, in the Old Testament, one of the pictures or images that is, uh, uh, depicts uh, the people of Israel is that of a vine. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, however, so he's... The Lord is saying here that Israel was, was a, a, a luxurious and a choice vine, and it was yielding its fruit. But unfortunately, in this indictment against Israel for their idolatry, he goes on to say, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. In other words, the more he tended to drift toward idolatry. So as, as the country was becoming fruitful, the kingdom was becoming fruitful, it would tend to drift away and to build more idols or altars to idols continues as his country improved he improved his pillars again symbols of idolatry another passage is in psalm 80 and you could turn there if you would like to psalm 80 where several times in this psalm it makes reference to israel as that vine In the prayer in verse 7 of Psalm 80, there's a prayer. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, this is in the context here of um, the, the discipline of the Lord, the, a judgment upon the Lord because of their falling into idolatry and wandering away from God. So he makes this prayer in verse 7 of Psalm 80. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. And then again, he repeats this. He comes back to it again in verses 14 and 15. You brought out a vine out of Egypt. And you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. 
It took deep root and filled the land. Mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars of its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. But then the Lord had said that he was going to, because of their rebellion and sin and idolatry, Notice what it says in verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls? So the walls are the fence around the vineyard to protect it. So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. This is a reference to the, the other nations that were going and invading and taking away parts of Israel. The boar from its forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. And then he says again, turn again, O God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand has planted, and for your son whom you have made for yourself. Let me give you one more example, and I'll just have you write these references down. Isaiah chapter 5 also makes reference to Israel as this vine, this vineyard of the Lord. For sake of time, we won't get into that, but if you'd like to read Isaiah chapter 5, again, Israel is pictured there as the vine. But Israel, as we've said and noted before, had fallen into sin, idolatry, rebellion against the covenant of God. And so what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 15, when he's telling his disciples, he says, I am the true vine. He's not only making an analogy for them to understand their place in relation to him. He's, under, he's, he's showing their place in relation to him and his place as the true Israel. Jesus is, when it says that he's a true vine, he's not merely saying that he's not a counterfeit vine or a false vine or a, a wild vine that doesn't really produce fruit. True here is conveying the fulfillment of an Old Testament picture or symbolism or the fulfillment of an Old Testament illusion. Okay, now let me give you an example why, why this is true. You might be going, wait a second here. So what, what do you mean by the true conveys that? Elsewhere, John this gospel, John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, remember, this is the chapter on him. He had just performed the miracle of the, the feeding of the thousands. And then they wanted more bread and they're finding, they're tracking him down. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you, Israelites, the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, that's not to mean that the bread that they received, the manna in the wilderness, was a counterfeit one. No, it was to say that what was given there was for their nourishment in their time and their setting. But it also pictured something that was to come. And so when Jesus says the true bread from heaven, he's saying that was a picture of the ultimate reality that I'm going to fulfill. Similarly here, Jesus is using vine as the true vine. And in their minds, the Jewish minds who would understand the scripture, he would know, they would know that Jesus here is saying, I am the, I'm the true, I am true Israel. And this makes sense when you think through the life of Jesus, recapitulating the life of Israel, right? 
Jesus was born. The, the Magi come and want to worship the king who was born to the Jews. They come to Herod, and Herod's a little perplexed by this. And so uh, realizing that something was afoot here, that maybe the Messiah was coming, and it was a threat to his throne, he decides to send them on their way, go to Bethlehem. That's where the scriptures said that the Messiah would be born. And he goes, and then come back and tell me where he is so that I might come and worship him, right? <laughs> that I might kill, I mean worship him. Because indeed, he wants to kill them now. Uh, Joseph was warned in a dream. And where does Joseph is warned to go? To go to Egypt. And in Matthew's gospel, he tells you in Hosea, just a chapter away from the true vine, the vine reference, he says that out of Egypt I called my son. Now, you might go, wait a second, that sounds like a reference to the Exodus. My son being Israel. And out of Egypt I called my son. But Matthew's applying that passage not as a description of what happened in the past merely, but as what's happening in the future or what is happening with Jesus. Out of Egypt I called my son. They saw that go. This is not just saying about him bringing Israel out. This is saying that this is about Jesus. And that's why he has to go back to Egypt like Israel was in Egypt. Similarly, with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where was Israel when they were brought out of there? Exodus from Egypt. They were in the wilderness. Through their sin and rebellion, they're there for 40 years. How long is Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. They don't have bread in the wilderness, the people of Israel. So God provides manna from heaven. In Deuteronomy, and it says, And the Lord provided you. It says, Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus goes through the exact same experience for those 40 days and is tempted by the devil what does he quote he quotes from those passages i could go on and on we could do an entire series to show how jesus all of these images and pictures all throughout the old testament are finding their fulfillment in jesus and i think this true vine one is this too that jesus is the fulfillment he is israel and then therefore everybody who is in him whether jew or gentile is now israel so that's the first thing I want you to notice here about this passage. Jesus is Israel here. He's the true vine. Second, now he's talking about their relationship with him as the true Israel. And he, talks, he speaks of this in the, the categories of fruitful and unfruitful. In verses 2 and 3. Every branch in me, because he's the vine... He says he is the vine and his father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Fruitfulness throughout the scripture is a metaphor for the, the righteous, God-honoring, set-apart life. Indeed, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul uses this as the work, as a description of the, the spirit that Jesus was just talking about. Remember in the chapter before and at the end of this chapter and in chapter 16, the Apostle Paul making all of those connections and saying, oh, if you're in Christ and he gives his spirit to you, 
then we will have to put away the works of the flesh, he says in verse 19 and 20 and 21, like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, but now I've given that list of vices here. Now here is the virtues and that these virtues are the fruit of the spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified its flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live, if we belong to Jesus, we've been crucified with Jesus, then we live by the Spirit, we will walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit will, will bear that fruit in us. Similarly, unfruitfulness is a metaphor for the unrighteous things. The unfruitful branches are taken away. They're, they wither, they gather, wither, dries out, they gather and are burned. And burned is a depiction of kind of the final judgment many places. Now, some look at this passage and go, is this a passage about, you know, can you lose your salvation? I mean, are they branches? I mean, if you're describing them as branches, did they fall off? Um, this is really not the, that's really not the point that Jesus is trying to convey here. What he's trying to stress here is the importance of being connected to him. Because apart from him, he says, you cannot bear any fruit. If you are connected to Jesus, you will bear fruit. And so as the father is the, fine, the vine dresser, he's the gardener, he's tending it. One thing that you need to know about branches that are united to Jesus. That notice in verse 2, it says, the branches in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that does bear fruit, notice what he does with it. He prunes it or he cleans it. Verse 3, he says, he says to them that you are already clean or you are already pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. But back to verse 2, he says here, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes and he makes it more fruitful. I'm not a horticulturalist. I don't know much about this. Ask Janet. I get frustrated just trying to keep our tomatillo plant from totally collapsing and falling over. Um, but many of you here garden, correct? And uh, this was news to me. I don't know if it was because of Ari's, Ari has an um, apple tree in our backyard, and it was not, it's taken years to bear fruit. Well, apparently, help me out, Master Gardener. Do you, don't you prune kind of, prune it so that all of the nourishment that comes in from the ground and up through the tree or the plant then could go get directed to that fruit. Am I understanding this correctly? Any other horticulturalists want to chime in? Right? So you trim it so that what the nourishment that would come is not dispersed out to, you know, a whole, you know, maybe less fruitful branches, but it gets directed to and yields great fruit. Am I got this right? Well, I think that that's the picture and the idea here. The father then is the gardener who's trimming and cutting 
those branches. Notice it says, every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes. He prunes. God prunes us to make us more fruitful. And you can't help but think, pruning is a, it's a cutting. Pruning hurts. I think Jesus is going to say here to these disciples and to through them, and by extension to us, the truth of the matter is that painful experiences will be used by God to make us grow in the faith. God wants you to bear fruit, and he's tending you to make that happen. And sometimes that will be lopping off things, things that we might love, or even you know, even some, the sinful areas of our life, he's going to have to prune and take away. But he's going to sometimes he's going to take away some things that causes it causes some hurt. Painful experiences in our life make us grow in our faith and in our fruitfulness. There's a, a saying among those uh, Navy SEALs that have to go through. Um, through through buds training i've heard some of them i don't know if this is every one of them say this but i've heard them say uh this well there's there's one i can i can't say um one of the things that they say i can't say but here's the other one of the other things that they do say um it's more of a cleaner way of saying it um get comfortable being uncomfortable and you're going to be basically living an entire week with hardly any sleep and uh constantly wet constantly cold constantly sand in every kind of crack and crevice that you can find and they would say but you what you have to do is mentally you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable i think it's somewhat true here for a fruitful christian life it's going to be uncomfortable for the god to god to do that pruning in us but the other thing that jesus is saying here is that spiritual fruitfulness is impossible apart from Christ. Verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides to the vine, and you're sitting here going, that, that makes sense. The nourishment comes up through the, through the ground, through the, through the roots, up through the plant, and then out to the branches. A branch dangling out here by itself is not going to produce fruit. And he says, neither can you unless you abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. God is glorified when we bear fruit and we are saved by God to bear fruit. We are appointed by God to bear fruit. As it says in verse 16, you did not choose me. me, I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Similarly, in Ephesians chapter two, right? You are, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is a gift of God, not of works, so that anyone should boast. And he says, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. I think that dovetails really well with what Jesus is saying here. Unless you are connected to me by grace through faith in me, you're not going to be able to bear any fruit. So he says, abide in me. So that leads us to the third one. Well, abide in Jesus. What does abide in Jesus mean? He uses the word 11 times in just those seven verses. Did you notice that? Beginning in verse 4, 
In addition, it's also used in verse 16, but just from verse 4 through verse 10, it's used 11 times there. And some of them are commands. Abide in me. It's a command. It's an imperative in the Greek. Abide in me and I in you. I'm the vine, you're in the branches. And then he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Okay? If you do not abide, it's thrown away. But if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever will be done and be done for you. Etc. Etc. You could see it. Again, the imperative comes again in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And he says, abide in my love. Abiding in Jesus is necessary for bearing fruit and fruitfulness. The question is, how? How? If it's a command, and it's two times it's given there as a command, how do you do this? I think there's a couple of places in this passage, and then we can look elsewhere to see what does abiding in Jesus Christ mean? Let me give you a couple things. And these are, these are means of grace given by God, given to us for us to participate in so that we can, be, so that we can abide in Christ. First one is this, and I don't have these on the slides, but the first one is regular feeding on the word of Christ. Regular feeding on the word of Christ. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So feeding on the words of Christ. Is, is absolutely essential to understanding, to abiding in Christ. If you do not feed on the words of Christ, you're, you're not abiding in Christ. His word is not dwelling richly in you. Our fruitfulness comes from our faith in, in Christ and our union with him, but if we're not united to him in the means that he's given us through his word, and I'm thinking here in particular, the preaching of the word, when you gather together as the church and to hear the word preached, and then also as you read it, then you, then you have the word of Christ, and that's abiding in his word. If you neglect those means of grace, then you are you're disconnected from the vine. So the regular feeding on the word of Christ, abide in my words, and my words abide in you. Here's another one you could see in this passage, and that is loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. How do you abide in Christ? Well, you love Christ. How do you abide in Christ? You could put it this way. How do you abide in Christ? Well, you keep his commandments. Well, how do you keep his commandments? Well, you do it out of love for him. Notice back in the previous chapter, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, verse 21, John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. 
Also, verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. D.A. Carson put it this way, if obedience is the condition of continuously remaining in Jesus' love, it is no less important to remember that in the verses that I just read, our Father, or our love for Jesus is the wellspring of our obedience. Okay, so you need to get this right. It's our love for Jesus leads to obedience to Jesus, and the love and obedience leads to abiding in him. Similarly, he says it here in this passage today, John chapter 15, verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And he gives the command, abide in my love. And then he explains it in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Okay, that's the clear statement there. And then Jesus gives the analogy for us in uh, verse, the rest of verse 10. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So notice that what Jesus is connecting this to here is saying, as I have loved the Father and my love for the Father manifests in obedience to him, I am now abiding in my Father's love. So too for you. If you love me, you will obey what I command and you will abide in my love. Okay? This is what is referred to as gospel obedience gospel obedience do not neglect the role of gospel obedience in our abiding in Christ or sometimes it's referred to as evangelical obedience it's just the evangelical is another word for gospel so it's sometimes referred to as evangelical obedience or gospel obedience okay now what this is not saying they would reject a heresy that would say that obedience is a condition for our justification for before God. That obedience is the condition for gaining our righteousness. No, we are only we only have justification by faith alone in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. But gospel obedience is saying, notice you even got the words gospel. You have the gospel that we're justified and declared righteous before God through faith alone, and so gospel comes first and then obedience. There, you, you don't receive the gospel without it manifesting in obedience to Christ and his word. Hence, gospel obedience. Or if I could give you kind of a sequence here, it's love for Jesus, keep his commands, abide in him, and it produces fruit in us. Here's what I mean. So you've heard me speak of our the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Let me read to you a couple of uh, sections from it chapter 11 verse uh, chapter 11 paragraph 2 on justification faith thus receiving and resting on christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification yet it is not alone in the person justified but is ever accompanied by other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. You see, you get the, the sequence here. We're justified not by our works or our obedience. We're justified by faith of Christ alone. But it's never, it's never alone. It will manifest itself in other saving graces. It's not going to be a dead faith. Or chapter 13 on sanctification, paragraph 3. 
And here he's talking about a spiritual warfare that we go encounter. In which war, the spiritual war of sanctification, although the remaining corruption for a time may prevail, so meaning our sin nature, sometimes it prevails and manifests as sin in our lives, although that happens, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part of us doth overcome. It overcomes. And so... The saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after an, a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed them. He even uses that, evangelical obedience. So obedience out of love for Christ leads to obedience to Christ, leads to abiding in him, and abiding in him produces fruit in us. Or one more, chapter 16. This is the paragraph or chapter on good works. These good works, okay, it's talking about good works being necessary for the Christian life. Again, the good works are not being the fruit of our justification, but the fruit of our justification. These good works done in obedience to God's commands are fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness. By doing obedience to Christ, it strengthens our insurance. It edifies the brothers and sisters. It adorns the profession of the gospel. It stops the mouths of our adversaries. And it glorifies God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. Okay, so love for Jesus, keeping his commands, abiding in him produces fruit. Not, uh, it is not, uh, you, you don't have miss any of the elements there. So you don't have um, keeping his commandments and producing fruit is abiding in him. No, it's love for Jesus Keeping his commands, abiding in him, produces fruit. Okay? So this is a very important one because it's, there's no antinomianism here. There's no let go and let God. No, there's a call for Christians who, if having been justified by faith in Christ alone, are now called to now walk in obedience to him out of love for Christ and what he's done and by the power of the Spirit in us. Okay, so there's so in order to to have this uh, gospel obedience, so we're talking about the things that um, the the means of grace that God has given us. There's loving Jesus and keeping His commands, but that comes again from regularly feeding on the Word that He's given us, gathering together with the people of God to hear the preaching of the Word. I was reading a commentary not too long ago by uh, Puritan Richard Sibbs, and he was asking about the question, why, why is preaching so important? Why is preaching so important? And he said this wonderful phrase. He goes, because sin came in from the ear, ear so too its remedy. Sin came in from the ear. Eve heard the words of Satan. I think that's a what... Well put. And of course, that's what it says. Faith comes 
How do we get faith? How do we nourish our faith? How do we grow in faith? The Apostle Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the word of Christ, and then we could say the other ones, looking elsewhere in scripture, the sacraments or ordinances like baptism and the Lord's prayer. Those are means of grace by which he nourishes us and helps to develop fruit in us. Prayer, corporate worship, the gathering together of God's people. And, and, and this does not counting sitting in private in front of a computer screen, stream, streaming it. Back to our confession statement, chapter 26 of the church. It says, those thus called by God and saved, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies. I love that, you know, or churches. He says in the next line, particular societies. You have to walk with people for fruitfulness to develop in your life. For you to abide in Christ, to you to walk in faithfulness. I, I could give a couple of others. You could talk about Christian fellowship and church discipline. But the main means of grace that he's given us is his word preached. The gathering together to hear the word preached and for us to participate in the sacraments. And so this, it's important to grasp gospel obedience. Gospel obedience. And gospel obedience is not from drudgery, okay? Gospel obedience, again, as we pointed out here, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It won't be, my commands won't be burdensome. They're not going to be hard. When you love me, and how do you love Jesus? But to think about the love that he has shown me in dying for me. So it's out of love, but gospel obedience is not a drudgery, but it's a joy. It's a joy. Notice verse 11. These things, everything he said up here to this point, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, that my joy, the joy that Jesus has, might be in you and that your joy may be full. You would be filled with not a joy, not your joy, my joy. Christ's joy in us and our joy to the, to the full. Brothers and sisters, may we, may we think about these wonderful words of Jesus here and who he is inviting us to be a part of. Where Israel was, was called by God to represent God in the world, to be his covenant people in the world, that in a couple of places, Israel was to be a light to all of the nations. And ho, oh, how Israel failed in that regard. And so in the fullness of time, God sends forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That Jesus is that new Israel. He's the true vine. And if we're united to him, then we will by God's spirit and his grace, he will bear fruit in us. It might be painful. It might be hard as he's trimming that away, but he's going to work to bear fruit in you and he's giving us the means by which to do that. Let's walk in them, shall we?
Let's out of our great, out of the love, our love for Christ, keep his commandments, abide in him, and that by his grace and the spirit, he will bear fruit in us. Amen? Let's stand for our closing prayer. Oh, merciful God, we thank you. For out of the great love with which you have loved us, you sent forth your son, Jesus, into the world. And that by receiving and resting in on him, by hearing that wonderful gospel that we are justified by his works, which we receive by faith alone, that we're made right for you right with you. We are eternally grateful for that wonderful news. May we cling to that news and preach it to ourselves over and over again. And Lord, having been just uh, thus justified through Christ and his work and not our own, we'd ask that you would, by your spirit, Help us to love Jesus, follow Jesus, abide in him, that we too may bear fruit. For that is how we bring glory to you. It's how you are glorified when we bear fruit in Christ's name. And so help us as you would trim us as the vine dresser, as the gardener, Help us to know that the pruning that you do is for our good and for our fruitfulness. So we ask your grace to sustain us in that and to produce, produce fruit that would bring glory to your name. We ask this in Christ's mighty, holy, and precious name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.